What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. High School Musical song. Wow. Cats in the house. I don't remember the rest. I'll never forget in college. It was my freshman year, and me and my freshman year roommate had uh, one too many Mountain Dews because we were not of legal (laughs) drinking age, and um, we watched all three of those movies. That's a bold call. All three. And uh, anyway, let's get to the show. I guess you could say it was a college musical. Night. Yeah, let's get to the show. Yeah. Uh, so, Jacob, this is your intervention. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording it live for our thousands of listeners. Ninety percent of this is not staying in. <laughs> Man, this is what happens when we take too long of a break. In <laughs> Honestly, this is what happens when we get food. Honestly, that food was not a sponsor, but boop Irish pub. Yeah, great place. Good yeah, food. If, if you want to dial in Evan's location. Yeah, if you want to just reverse engine shit, yeah, we might need to cut, <laughs> might need to cut that too. This is a terrible intro so far. Actually, just bleep out, just leave everything else, and it'll be hilarious. Oh, so funny! Now I gotta bleep it out twice. Shoot, <laughs> <laughs> boop Irish pub. Yeah, head on down to boop. Oh, even even Irish pub is too too much. I mean, they don't know where we live. Go to Hank's Portuguese <laughs> bar. All right, my fellow gemstones, it is. I will literally never get ready for it. The thing is, like, the listeners can't see it. I literally step away from the microphone, take a huge deep breath, and really lean right into it. And then my voice becomes like this for literally no reason. And um, anyway, back to what I was saying. I am your co-host, Evan Roosh, and join with me always, we have the illustrious the bodacious he is speed itself jacob shot <laughs> wow you're the human embodiment of speed you had the fastest mile time in fifth grade uh, sure yes that is on the record now <laughs> yep yes i am here and i am speed <laughs> <laughs> but today we have another really fun episode for you guys as always we're doing part 2 of our war of 1812 part de- Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Like we mentioned last time, this war is just completely not talked about nearly enough as it should, as it had huge impact on what the rest of the 1800s would be like for the United States. Now, it didn't have too much of an effect on the British Empire, but the way that post-War of 1812 United States formed from, well, for being quite honest... Racist feelings against Europeans, um, villainizing Native Americans, um, the way our government is set up, as well as our banking system is set up. This war had a huge impact on just about every 
facet of American life as, you know, naturally a invasion would have. Yeah. But last week, if you didn't... Uh, yeah, you should maybe go back and listen to part one if you didn't already. Listening to part two before part one would be quite bold. Actually, so you're aware of, like, the John Wick movies, right? Yeah. I actually had a conversation with some people recently that they went to see John Wick 3 when I was in theaters before seeing 1 and 2. I've heard of people doing that with other movies before. It's just like, I, what? And they were subsequently okay? like lost and hated the movie. It's like, yeah, you're going to hate yeah, the movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you missed literally 70% of the movie franchise. Right. It's like, I didn't understand the plot, you think. So, don't be like that. Listen to part one. But if Also, you... go rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes. Yes, tell us how cute we are on our audio uh, Audio medium, yes. Yeah. Or you could check out the photos from our photo shoot, which should be out, should be by, out by now. now. And if I they're assume... not, this is going to get cut out. Yep. <laughs> but I'm assuming they will be. <laughs> yep. Get to see us in action. Big shout out to our buddy, Ryan Yatso for mm-hmm. taking the photos for us. He yeah. did an awesome job and it was super fun. Yeah. Did a tremendous job. It was very odd having to pose because, you know, yeah. haven't done much posing in my life. Yeah. I'm not particularly model inclined. There's a reason why we're a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's audio medium. Right. Right. But. Anywho, just to do a quick recap and intro. So last week, we began our coverage of the War of 1812. The war where the United States and, Brit- and British decidedly said, let's go round two. There were several causes to the war, but there are three major ones that really stuck out. So first off, we had the trade disagreements that occurred as a result of the Napoleonic Wars and led to the U.S. suffering a huge economic depression. The strict trade restrictions brought about by Britain and France particularly hurt the New England colonies, which actually led to some rumors of a secession. So the South, if you're listening from the South and you think, well, we gave birth to uh, wine a split from the United States, you're actually wrong. Secondly, the British were impressing U.S. sailors to serve in the British Royal Navy. And if you're un- unfamiliar with impressing, that is basically saying... same. You're, you're unfamiliar with impressing people. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Man, we are just like... Lifelong theme. <laughs> yeah, we are very just full of self-confidence Our own today. critic. Exactly. Try to roast us. I bet you can't. Even though, please don't. You will make me weep. Leave us five stars with your best roast. <laughs> Honestly, if it's five stars, go for it. Yeah, that'll be fine. Except do it like honey roast. So it's like... And they are <laughs> so it's kind of sweet. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a little backhanded, but also can be interpreted as a compliment. And finally, the calls for westward expansion. Wait, we totally didn't go through what impressing actually was. Oh, whoops! Because <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> but if you're unfamiliar, impressing was basically uh, the British Navy stopping United States merchant ships, searching the ships for former British seamen. And get out of here. And uh, basically calling them back into service to the Royal Navy. And now, finally, uh, the call for westward expansion after the Louisiana Purchase led to a severe distrust between Native Americans and American expansionists and settlers, leading 
Tecumseh. Tecumseh. Why do I have Tecumesh? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Leading Tecumseh and a large number of tribes to seek aid from the British. We also dove into some of the earlier battles where we kind of laid out how we were getting it handed to us by our friends from the wintry north without even using any syrup. They actually just use guns. They just use hockey sticks. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> oh, and now I get to fight with a Canadian hockey player. No. Oh. However, like a phoenix rises from the ashes, <laughs> America was about to turn things around. So momentum really started to swing back for the United States at the Battle of Lake Erie. So at dawn on the morning of September 10th, 1813, a lookout spotted six British ships to the northwest of Putten Bay, a.k.a. Lake Erie, beyond Rattlesnake Island. Immediately, Master Commandant Oliver Hazard Perry issued a flurry of orders and made preparations to sail forth to engage the British. The British squadron consisted of six ships with 63 cannons, while the American fleet comprised of nine vessels and 54 guns. I just, how do, how do you get the ships there? Oh, to Lake Erie? Yeah. Is there like a canal that they took? Or like? How does that, because I'm just envisioning like the British yeah, people car- like, literally carrying the ships there. Like, that's true. Do they have to build those bad boys? I have no idea. But that was like my biggest question when I heard about this battle was like, how did the ships get there? Like for the Americans, it makes a little more sense because like we had the land, like we might as well build ships there unless they did the same because they were just right north, which maybe, I don't know. This is great content. Me just looking. Oh, so there there are riverways that lead to Lake Erie. Okay. So first off, through they would go through Lake Ontario and then through Lake Erie. That's a great question because that's uh, something I didn't even think needed explaining, but it definitely does. So yeah. through Canada, there are multiple uh, riverways. So going through the St. Lawrence River, through Quebec, Montreal, Ottawa, and then you go through Lake Ontario and then to Lake Erie. I feel like I'm I'm a dad giving instructions on how to get somewhere. Probably just from the weather. Outside. Yeah. So, yeah. The power, power, literally, the power just uh, literally just kicked out for like 10 seconds. Right. Are we still recording? Yeah, recording's fine. Haha, <laughs> battery power. Yeah. <laughs> that was literally my ghost being like, stop talking. Move on from the waterways. <laughs> <laughs> there's literally a winter, according to my phone, there's a winter squall going on outside. Right. So. I'm sticking to the ghost theme because we did say that we were the number one podcast of hell last. That is last that week. is accurate, and I have a ghost at my house, so maybe it just followed me. Here. I'll be so mad at you if you just. It doesn't do anything bad if we just get joint custody of a ghost. <laughs> we switch off on weekends. It's our mascot. But the British were armed with long guns that could throw a cannonball approximately one mile, accurately at about a half mile range. And the American ships primarily were armed with cannonades, which had less than half of the range of the long guns. That's kind of crazy, throwing a cannonball a mile. That is so far. That is very far. And, like, it would just tear ships apart even when it was launched from a mile away. Yeah, that's nuts. Like, these British long guns were a huge reason why they were such a superpower, because, like, they even had more advanced technology than the United States. And this is all just happening in Lake Erie. Basically, Oliver Hazard Perry, who was the commander of the United States fleet, knew that he needed the wind to his back 
to get within cannonade range to actually do damage to these ships. When the United States fleet sailed from Putten Bay Harbor at 7 a.m., the American vessels were steering west to northwest, and the wind was actually blowing west to southwest. For more than two hours, Perry repeatedly taxed his ships in an effort to put the wind to his back, but had no success. The frustrated Perry conceded to Mother Nature at 10 a.m., issuing orders to turn his fleet in the opposite direction. But before the order could be executed, the wind suddenly shifted. What and is this, Tommy Boy? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and blew. <laughs> Quit playing with your dinghy. And suddenly blew from the southeast, placing the wind directly behind the Americans. Now, some typical naval warfare happened. The British obviously did have the range advantage, so they were able to do sufficient damage. But the more powerful cannonades, when they got close, were really able to tear apart the British ships. So, as a result, the United States Navy defeated and captured six British vessels of the Royal Navy. This gave control of the Great Lake to the United States, and then shortly after, William Henry Harrison was able to retake Detroit in the Battle of the Thames, in which the Native American leader, Tecumseh, was killed. I'm going to struggle with that name. I don't know why. The British kind of just left the Native Americans out to dry there. Like, mm-hmm. they said, like, yeah, we'll help. And then they did not help. And never showed up. Yeah. So it was very much just Native Americans against a reinvigorated, Amer- like, U.S. American army. So, yeah, didn't set them up well. Right. And then after this, American forces in 1813 sacked the capital of Upper Canada, York, which is present day Toronto. After an ammunition explosion at a garrison killed 300 Americas, Americas, Americans, <laughs> just 300 countries. Yeah, you guys didn't know this, but there was actually 302 Americas before we got North and South America. The, yeah, the uh, multiverse is real, apparently. Irate U.S. forces responded by burning the Canadian capital parliament and other public buildings to the ground yeah they pretty much got there realized that there wasn't like any actual army there and so they're just like well we're just gonna completely destroy this place yep and they actually even stole a british imperial lion from the parliament which is still in the at the u.s naval academy nice it's probably the one token from the war of 1812 yeah. that people kept and the star spangled banner those are the only two things there we go <laughs> And also Angie Jackson. but And hey. all of the Western lands that we took from the natives. Ooh, we're just playing America's greatest hits. Yep. So at this point, you're thinking, hey, we just won this huge naval battle. We just took back Detroit. And we just burnt their capital to the ground. Things are going pretty great. However, in April of 1814, the combined European forces defeated Napoleon's armies and sent him into his first exile. And this meant that the British Army and Navy can turn a large part of its attention to the United States. Guess what that means for the United States? Ruh-roh! <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, another expert from Andrew Lambert's paper, who, if you don't remember our sources, he's kind of the source I have to relay the British viewpoint of the War of 1812. So he says, and I quote, 
The decisive events of the war was the abdication of Napoleon in April 1814. This gave the British the option of increasing their military effort to secure a decisive victory. But the Duke of Wellington's army remained in Europe, and only sent a few regiments to facilitate the capture of Washington. The British fo focus on Europe remained absolute from 1803 to 1815. Securing a peaceful, stable, and durable settlement on the continent was far more important than the Canadian frontier. So basically, they sent over a lot more troops, don't get me wrong, but British w uh, the British were still not using their entire force um, on the United States, which is very thankful. Yeah. Very thankful for that. Or they kind of we... had like a lot going on over in Europe, so right. <laughs> Canada's not a huge factor for them. Yeah, Canada's just kind of a bonus. They're very much focused on World War Zero. Yeah. But either way, a large number of British troops landed in the Chesapeake Bay area and began the Battle of Bladensburg. So British forces under General Robert Ross overcame American forces at the battle and from there marched unopposed towards the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C. They occupied Washington and famously set fire to several government buildings, including the White House, which was then known as the Presidential Mansion. It wasn't so white after that, was it? It was a little crispy. Oh. The following day, the arson continued until a drenching two-hour thunderstorm extinguished all the flames. The massive storm spawned a rare tornado that blew roofs off buildings, buckled a bridge over the Potomac, and even lifted two cannons off the ground. According to the National Weather Service, flying debris from the tornado killed more British, British soldiers than American guns did during their brief occupation of the nation's capital. So yeah, big they, shout out God, I guess. They were only there for like 24 hours or so. So yeah, it was not like a huge thing because they pretty much knew like we got to move out of here. Like mm. there's no reason for us to stay here. So, but the guy that was in charge during the seizure of Washington, D.C. had probably one of the funniest names in this whole <laughs> scenario. So during the seizure of the Capitol, British Admiral George Cockburn <laughs> ha had <laughs> he apparently had all of the troops that weren't just like burning the Capitol building or the White House destroy all of the letter C's for all of the printing presses so that the Americans couldn't make fun of his name, which we're gonna do a lot. So he's just had it coming for two hundred years, and now <laughs> here we are. Yeah, look at us now. Yeah, that is very like why just the C? Why not do the whole C O C K? I don't know. <laughs> Blank burn. <laughs> because he's gotten... Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, did he expect the American people to just look at this name without the C and just think, man, I wonder what the rest of them... <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, right. look at that. It's like man, Wordle. <laughs> they took all of our Cs away. <laughs> you know, the... Right. I don't know. You could say it was a Cs and a cyst. <sighs> and you'd call this my intervention. <laughs> Shortly after, in early September 1814, a British army under George Prevost entered New York State from Canada and advanced towards Plattsburgh. British ground troops soon engaged in skirmishes with the Americans. Then, on September 11th, whoa, whoa, a British naval squadron under Captain George Downey 
sailed into battle against a smaller American naval force under Master Commandant Thomas McDonoghue, who was waiting at Plattsburgh Bay on Lake Champlain. Shortly after the battle began, Downey was killed, and after several hours of fighting, the British surrendered. Provost called off the land battle, and the British retreated to Canada. So now, just trying to paint you the picture, things are going a little bit back and forth between the British and Americans' forces. Yeah, you got Cockburn destroying, well, literally burning things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you could say he would, never mind. <laughs> that was going to be so out of pocket. That was just going to be, nah, okay, let's get out of here. Moving on. Now, two days later, on September 13th, 1814, Baltimore's Fort McHenry withstood 25 hours of bombardment from the British Navy. The United States, under Major General Samuel Smith, comprised of 1,000 men at Fort McHenry, and had 20 guns against the British forces under Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane. <laughs> no way. <laughs> C-O-C-H. Ah. Uh, so I guess that was a little bit of a force on yeah, me. Yeah, Cockburn is literally C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N, yeah. so no, no ambiguity there. The British and their cocks, I tell you. <laughs> Do we have any UK listeners? Because if, Probably. If so, I'm sorry. I'm not. The Brit- <laughs> We're going to start you, the you war. You know what of- you got into here. Right. We're just going to start the war of 2022. Yeah. But the British were more than well equipped with 19 ships and 5,000 men in the battle. The British advanced to attack Baltimore, a vital port city, which they believed was the base of many American privateers who were actually prying on British shipping. Baltimore's residents and defenders had declared their firm stance against the British by seizing their merchant ships and transporting limited cargoes to foreign ports. So they were kind of being makeshift pirates against the British, which shout out the city of Baltimore. Baltimore had accounted for about 30% of all merchant ships captured by U.S. forces. Go Ravens! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they earned themselves the nickname, the Nest of Pirates, which you did not think of when you think of Baltimore today. No. Kind of sweet, though. If you had to pick a nickname for your city... The Nest of Pirates? I would assume that's just for Tortuga as well, but here we are in Baltimore. So the attack ended with the successful defense of the city of Baltimore, and this definitely restored a lot of American pride, which was much needed after the burning of Washington, D.C. The attack on Baltimore Harbor... Famously inspired American lawyer to write the Star-Spangled Banner, the song that would eventually become the national anthem of the United States. Yeah, there's like a mis- misrepresentation, I guess you could say, that like the whole story is that he was captured and he wrote it while he was captured, but that's just like not actually true. No. <laughs> he like, apparently one of his friends was captured by the British and was on the ship. So he went to like go lawyer his friend out of being captured and apparently talked like so well to the British. They were like, Oh yeah, you guys can leave. But they were like, wait, we're about to attack this city. So you guys can't leave and let them know. So (laughs) you guys have to sit on the ship and watch while we do this. And Mm -hmm. then while he was watching, he started to write it. And like most of it is written like in the form of a question because he was like, is the flag gone? I can't tell. There's too much smoke. Like, I'll say. Can, can you, you see? see? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. now we just say it as like a proclamation. Right. He was just like, there was like someone standing in front of him like, wait, can you see? <laughs> <laughs> but a fun fact, 
the tune of the Star Spangled Banner is actually set to an English drinking song. To And the song is called To Anacreon in Heaven. That's like the most American thing I've ever heard. They heard a nice little tune and we're like, nope, this is ours now. A this drink- is our entire identity. Not only did we steal it, but it's also a drinking song. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so after the Battle of Baltimore... Peace talks had started in Ghent, which was modern-day Belgium. And the British moved for an armistice after the failure of the assault on the city of Baltimore. In the negotiations that followed, the United States gave up its demands to end impressment, while the British promised to leave Canada's borders unchanged and abandon efforts to create an Indian state in the Northwest. And on December 24th, 1814, commissioners signed the Treaty of Ghent, which would be ratified the following February. So, at this point, they think that the war is over. Well, the fun thing is... That was in Europe, so... Yes, in Belgium. (laughs) Yeah. A landlocked country. So, just like the initial declaration of war, this news that the... Peace treaty was signed, didn't get back for months to the states. And funny enough, the biggest battle of the entire War of 1812 technically happened after the war was over. Yeah. But there's the one thing that I kind of wish the British would have just been like, we're keeping this in, is that we would have given the Native Americans like their own separate like state in the Northwest. Right. Because that would have probably solved a good good amount of issues. Would have solved a lot of bloodshed. I mean, uh, I'm sure. Forward. Well, we would have seen how long that would have lasted. We would have found a way. Yeah, <laughs> but at least it would have been like a safeguard for a little while. So, oh yeah, <laughs> one one thing they could have kept. Right, like we mentioned, the British kind of left and said, "Toodaloo, You're best right. of luck with these." Uh, well, I guess we can say it. Kind of psychos. Yeah. So thus began the Battle of New Orleans, the biggest battle of the War of 1812, which really didn't need to happen. Everyone throwing beads at each other. Just everyone's just out drinking, like drink races. <laughs> that, that's how we won. That's how we won, yeah. Honestly, I think we probably would have lost, though, because the British love to drink. The so. British invented drinking. Yeah. <laughs> so standing in the way of the British advance was Major General Andrew Jackson who had rushed to New Orleans when he learned an attack was in the works. His nickname was Old Hickory for his legendary toughness. Jackson had spent the last year subduing hostile Creek Indians in Alabama and harassing the Redcoats along the Gulf Coast. The general had no love for the British. He had actually spent time as their prisoner during the Revolutionary War, and he was itching for a chance to confront them in battle. He's actually quoted... I owe to Britain a debt of retaliatory vengeance. Should our forces meet, I trust I shall pay the debt. And he wrote that to his wife, of all the people. Nice. Not to another general. He's like, sorry. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> Man, that's just that's comedy a setup. right there. That's a setup right there. I, I am, am comedy. comedy. <laughs> <laughs> After British forces were sighted near Lake Bourne, Jackson declared martial law in New Orleans and ordered that every available weapon and man 
be brought to bear in the city's defense. His force soon grew into a 4,500-strong patchwork of army regulars, militiamen, free slaves, New Orleans aristocrats, and Choctaw tribesmen. So it was a real, for lack of a better word at this time, a hodgepodge of yeah. troops defending New Orleans. It was a mix and match. It was um, an all-you-can-eat buffet where you can get a little <laughs> bit of every nationality, I guess. We have to work on our... F- on our, on our metaphors, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> After some hesitation, Andrew Jackson even accepted the help of Jean Lafitte, a dashing pirate who ran a smuggling and privateering empire out of nearby Barataria Bay. So, we add pirates to the mix. Nice. Andrew Jackson's ramshackle army was to face off against 8,000 British troops, many of whom were veterans of the Napoleonic Wars. So they're just tired. Oh, they probably do not want to be there <laughs> yeah. at all. And they're just in the swamps of New Orleans yeah, after you... fighting Mr. 5-7. Yeah, depending on where you're fighting to, it's like you just went from like a very cold environment to fighting literally in December in Louisiana. Because December in the UK in, or in France, it's not the warmest, mm. but... Louisiana's still like probably 75 and just humid as hell. So, right. They're probably like, oh, a nice little vacation. And there's just a million mosquitoes. Yeah. I assume. And a bunch of people shooting at you. And then there's pirates. Jack Sparrow is coming down. At the helm was Lieutenant General Sir Edward Pakenham, a respected veteran of the Peninsular War and the brother in law of the Duke of Wellington. The two sides first came into action on December 23rd, so the day before the peace treaty was officially signed. When Jackson launched a nighttime surprise attack on British forces, who were nine miles south of, south of New Orleans, Jackson then fell back to Rodriguez Canal, a 10-foot-wide mill race, located near Chalmette Plantation off the Mississippi River. He then used local slave labor to widen the canal into a more defensive trench, and used the excess dirt to build a seven-foot-tall rampart with timber. It's so funny. I was watching, uh, I got into a rabbit hole of watching videos of, like, military experts reacting to military scenes from movies, like that kind of thing. And one guy was, like, a medieval war expert or whatever. Sure. He was reacting to Lord of the Rings movies, of all things. Like, oh. <laughs> but he was cool. Like, he was just like, oh, I know it's a fantasy movie. It's for fun. Like, But he was reacting to them like charging the walls and two towers and stuff like that all right and he's like i don't know how many times i have to say this but all you got to do is make a big trench and it's so much easier because then they can't get the big like tower things to the wall they can't put ladders up anymore because they're going to be too short oh yeah he's just like you like 90 percent of your problems would be solved if you just dug a big trench (laughs) and that's how the moat was born (laughs) (laughs) literally it's like it's so much easier to defend something with a trench there huh yeah. And they really took that to heart in World War One. I. <laughs> I guess. They're yeah. like, now we're turning everything into a trench. But when completes this line Jackson stretched nearly a mile from the east bank of the Mississippi to a nearly impassable marsh. So they really hunkered down in this one area, built a lot of makeshift fortifications, and basically Jackson even said, Here we shall plant our stakes and not abandon them until we drive these red coat rascals into the river or the swamp. 
So this is where he chose to basically make his last stand, and not even in the city of New Orleans itself. But worked out real well for him, though. Yeah. Way to play the terrain. Yeah. Build a trench. Right. He knew. Build a trench. He saw the video. He saw the video, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Despite the imposing fortifications, Lieutenant General Pakenham believed the dirty shirts, as the British called the Americans, which is just kind of rude, would wilt before the might of a full British army in formation. Yeah, because we did that in 1776, didn't we? Quite a bit at the start. (laughs) Almost every single time. Yeah. Following a skirmish on December 28th and a massive artillery duel on New Year's Day, Pakenham devised a strategy for a two-part frontal assault. A small force would charge with crossing, or excuse me, a small force was charged with crossing the west bank of the Mississippi and seizing an American battery. Once they were in possession of the cannons, they were to turn them on the Americans and catch Jackson and his men in a crossfire. At the same time, a larger contingent of 5,000 Redcoats would charge forward in two columns and crush the main American line at Line Jackson. So basically, he was trying to send a force behind them to where the American cannons were. Once those were captured, he would then use our own guns combined with the British guns to do a lot of bombarding. Pinch maneuver. Oldest trick in the book. Literally. Pakenham put his plan to action at daybreak on January 8th, and at the sound of a Congreve rocket whistling overhead, the red-coated army let out a cheer and began an advance toward the American line. British cannons opened up en masse and were immediately met with an angry barrage from Jackson's artillery pieces. Most of them were manned by pirates. Let's go. Dun, dun. Wait, that's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. Thank you. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> While Pakenham's main force moved on the canal near the swamp, British light troops led by Colonel Robert Rennie advanced along the riverbank and overwhelmed an isolated redoubt, scattering the defenders. Rennie had just enough time to howl, Hurrah, boys! The day is ours! Before he was immediately shot dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's something like straight out of either a cartoon or just a comedy movie. That's like movie. a Deadpool movie scene. <laughs> that is straight out of Deadpool. That is tremendous. With their commander lost, his men made a frantic retreat, only to be cut down in a hail of musket balls and grape shot. Which sounds horrendous. Yeah, especially grape shot. <laughs> I can't imagine being struck by a grape shot. Like, that, like for context, that literally just explodes your bones if you get hit. Yeah, and it's just like a bunch of little like lead balls in yeah. your body, so no thanks. Literal Swiss cheese. Not a fan. The situation on the other side of the line proved even more chaotic. Pakenham had counted on moving under the cover of the morning mist, but the fog went away when the sun rose, giving American riflemen and artillerymen clear sight, land, clear sight lines. Cannon fire soon began which put in gaping holes in the British line, sending men and equipment flying. As the British troops continued the advance, their ranks were riddled with musket shot. Andrew Jackson watched the destruction from a perch near the right side of the line and shouted, Give it to them, my boys. Let us finish the business today. Give them the gape. Keep on blowing gaping holes. (laughs) 
Man, great I'm just shot imagining him like sitting in like a chair, legs crossed, with a cup of like cup of coffee, just like watching. Just, Go ahead, boys. Mm, give it to them, my boys. You can do it, boys. Old Hickory's militiamen, having honed their aim hunting in the woods of the frontier, fired with incredible precision. They Davy Crockett. They Davy Crockett at everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I got the name wrong for a second. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh, Davy Crockett. The red-coated soldiers fell in waves with each American volley, many with multiple wounds. Again, with that grape shot, you get uh, hit a couple times and all your bones explode. One stunned British officer later described this fight as resembling a row of fiery furnaces, and he was describing the constant volleys coming from the American line. This is like D-Day in Normandy. Like when we storm the beach, like if the the scene from Saving Private Ryan where oh, they right. storm the beach and it's just people getting mowed down. Mm. Except it didn't work for the British. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the the British's plan was quickly unraveling. Their men had bravely stood their ground amid the chaos, but a unit carrying ladders and wood fascines needed to scale the wall where Line Jackson was, and they were lagging behind. Peckenham took it upon himself to lead the outfit to the front, but in the meantime, his main formation was cut down by rifle and cannon fire. When some of the redcoats began to flee, one of Peckenham's subordinates unwisely tried to wheel the 93rd Highlanders Regiment to their aid. American troops quickly took aim and unleashed an incredible maelstrom of fire that killed more than half of the entire regiment in a couple volleys including the leader. Around the same time, Pakenham and his entourage were laced by a blast of grape shots, and the British commander died minutes later. And this isn't too far removed from the time period when people fought wars by lining up and literally taking turns shooting at each other. Yep. So this is like completely different from what they were fighting literally three decades before. Right. So this is a whole new style of warfare that they're fighting. And the Americans are like, we're just going to hang out and like shoot at you guys constantly. And these British people are all trying to form up, keep like stay in rank and stuff. It's like, that's not going to work in this situation. <laughs> Right, and I mean, they even did those same tactics in the Napoleonic Wars. It was line up, let's uh, do a couple of volleys and do a charge. And then they saw this seven-foot dirt wall and were just shook. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, wait, wait, wait. Can they, can they like, break out their official rule book? Like, can they do that? There's only, yeah, this isn't like house rules for beer pong. This is just, this is, you can do anything. Right. Why, why are you sticking to that? Rules are, there ain't you, no rules. You need to change. <laughs> right. The British did eventually seized the American artillery position, but when they turned the guns on the Americans, they saw that the entire British force was already retreating. Which has <laughs> to be such worst, a bummer. <laughs> the worst day. Like you you finally did what you were supposed to do and then you just see everyone else yeah. running away. American Major Howell Tatum later said this about the enemy casualties. It was truly distressing. Some had their heads shot off, some their legs, some their arms. Some were laughing, some were crying. There was every variety of sight and sound. Don't doubt that at all. 
like shock just takes over oh yeah i'm sure that they start like laughing about yeah can you you imagine that scene though like you're out on the battlefield and you just hear like people screaming that's like top of their lungs in pain and then like every once in a while you come across a guy just like hysterically laughing like that's terrifying it's like he's laughing, but like there's also like a laugh track, like sign, like Steinfeld or Seinfeld. Like how's this always? It's like George. Yeah. <laughs> it's like of course I lose my arm. <laughs> <laughs> this is like discovering plutonium by accident. <laughs> but all in all, the assaults on Jackson's fortifications was a complete disaster, costing the British two thousand casualties, including three generals and several colonels, all in a span of 30 minutes. So this is a very quick battle, and 2,000 British died. Somehow, Jackson's ragtag outfit lost fewer than 100 men. Yeah, the totals that I saw was 20, 36 for the British, and 71 for yeah. Jackson and his forces. It's crazy. Which is nuts. Like, wow, who'd have thunk? Build a wall. Yeah. In battle, not on our borders, but... <laughs> separate side tangent we were close to it though (laughs) yeah separate yeah we were right there in new orleans i guess just a little bit more to the left uh future president james monroe would later say this about general andrew jackson history records no example of so (laughs) this episode is just all over the place well siri decided to chime in there yeah History records no example of so glorious a victory obtained with so little bloodshed on the part of the victorious. The stunned British army lingered in Louisiana for a couple days, but eventually left in boats into the Gulf of Mexico. What do you do after that? Like, how do you, what do you do for the next couple days before you leave? Like, I don't know, I guess. Guess, guess we'll go get brunch. I can't. Um, <laughs> hey, boy, uh, boys, boys hey, want to rock a brunch? <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, we're here. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I can't imagine what a post-battle nap would be like. Oh, heavenly. Just getting back, like doing war with the boys <laughs> during the day and just crushing a nap in the afternoon. You guys want to do a day war today? <laughs> just a quick day, day war. Yeah, there's no clever way to combine those words. Nope, door. A door. <laughs> door. Onto a door. <laughs> yeah. News of the victory at New Orleans boosted the sagging U.S. morale and left Americans with the taste of victory, despite the fact that even through the peace negotiations, we literally didn't achieve any of our pre-war objectives. Yeah, so. we, we pretty much lost this war. <laughs> literally, we did it for shits and giggles Yeah, in a way. And destroyed our economy in the process. Yes. We, yeah. Just so a quick depression. We were, I believe, $45 million in debt at the start of this war, like January 1st, 1812. Mm-hmm. And by September of 1815, we were $120 million in debt. So good job, us. Some would say oof. <laughs> Big oof. Almost tripling our debt. <laughs> right. Now, looking back at it with a full 200 years of hindsight, like Jacob mentioned, there was no real winner. It is currently remembered as a minor conflict by both the United States and the British. It is, however, celebrated largely in Canada and for Native Americans, who see it as a decisive turning point in their losing struggle to govern themselves. I apologize, I not mean to say celebrate, but they 
remember the War of 1812 a lot more. They yeah. most certainly did not celebrate this. Yeah, I saw a quote that was pretty pretty like succinct and accurate, and it was that Canada knew they won the war, America thought they won the war, <laughs> and the British forgot they fought the war. <laughs> right, like we mentioned in episode one, when the British people, like, and this is from Andrew Lambert as well, offering the British perspective, when they're taught about the year of 1812, they celebrate that they beat Napoleon from conquering Europe. They do not care about this war at no. all in uh, hindsight. But Plus, they were just fighting all the time. So, Literally from early 1700s to probably late 1800s, the British were like constantly fighting. And then they went straight into World War I. Yeah. <laughs> so. They were wilding for... Yeah. <laughs> Hundreds of years. And Churchill took over and like, we're done. That's it. Why are we even doing this? For now. <laughs> yeah, then World War II. <laughs> yep. However, when we look at the War of 1812 a little bit more holistically, the impact that it had, particularly on the United States, was pretty incredible. And now I know I mentioned that a couple of times during this episode, but this is kind of where we're going to go into a little bit of the specifics. So... Like we mentioned in episode one, during this war, this is actually when we hear the first ever whispers of secession from a United States state. And it actually came from the Northeast states who were being targeted by British blockades. And now, like, this was obviously never followed up on, but this is one of the more unheard cases where states began to talk about states' rights outweighing a heavily centralized government. Which is ironic because a few couple years later, uh, the South would fight the Civil War, claiming that it was for individual states' rights, but of course it was for the individual states' rights to own slaves. Yeah. And this, the whole War of 1812 just really like ignited more of the hostility from North to South because. As we mentioned in episode one, the, the reasoning for going to war was pretty much just so that the South could expand their territory because they needed more land for agriculture. And they saw this as an opportunity pretty much to be like, yeah, we need to do this for America, mm-hmm. not just for us. And the North was like, that's a lie. So it's already begun here, translated into 40 years later or whatever that was. Right. And like, there's a ton of resentment. I don't think we mentioned this yet. Like, there was a ton of resentment. Like, the Battle of New Orleans was a quintessential battle for the country fought in the South. And we mentioned in episode one, a lot of the Northeastern states didn't even participate in this war. So there's kind of that divide between the two um, during the war. Basically, the South saying the North isn't doing their job, and the North saying the South are just bloodthirsty demons. May have over-exaggerated a little bit with the demons part, but you get what I'm saying. But the second major kind of result or impact of this war, it did, even though we just said like it kind of divided the country a little bit, it did actually bring the nation closer together than it had been thus far. So for those of you that don't know, like after the Revolutionary War, the very first attempt at a U.S. government actually failed, like the Articles of Confederation. Failed miserably. They realized that you actually do need a centralized government to to run things. You need some overarching power here. Right. There needs to be some representation of um, 
you know, the people, and they need to kind of tell us what to do a little bit. Basically saying taxes needed to be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the party system was also already well underway, and a majority of Americans could not agree with each other on the major issues. For example, whether to go to war with Britain or not. And the end of the War of 1812 led to an increased sense of patriotism and togetherness for the American people at the time, because, like Jacob mentioned, we thought we had just won our independence again. Like, we fought off a superpower. And that's partly due to those conspiracies that everyone was saying, like, the British are coming to recolonize us. Now that this is pretty much America establishing itself as, like, saying we're here and we're here to stay. Like, Mm -hmm. we're not just a temporary thing. So it was kind of a turning point in America's mind. And it proved to the rest of the world, like, we can fight a major power and still stand. So we're not going anywhere. Yep. Definitely set the framework for a lot of what would happen in the next two hundred years. Hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna say the next like two couple decades, but nope, spending a lot longer. Yep. And then finally, like we've mentioned a couple times during the last two weeks, the Native Americans definitely got, uh, as per usual, the raw end or the short end of the stick. Unless Very they got much. the. Don't know how else to say this. They kind of got screwed over. They were the losers. Yes. And the Native Americans presiding in the United States, most particularly in the West and the North, were literally left to fend for themselves against the growing monster that was United States westward expansion efforts. So any support that they had, either from settlers or from, you know, allies in the territories or even the united states government was gone like the native americans were very much villainized even if they participate in the war of 1812 or not they were completely villainized for joining the british in the war yeah and at this point the americans didn't really look at them with any difference between them it was all just native americans so they didn't discriminate by tribe or anything like that they just went out and wholesale right and like even i mean Native American tribes, the Choctaws, fought in the Battle of New Orleans. Like, right. lost men, and that's basically how we rewarded them. This attitude set up some of the most horrendous events in U.S. history, most specifically the Trail of Tears and the countless massacres that would occur in the name of Manifest Destiny. Yay. Playing our greatest hits. Yeah. I th- one of the videos I watched was the guy was like, you know, you guys keep getting mad at me saying I never celebrate American history, but why is there not more to celebrate? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like we would love to, but every single time something like, oh, we won the War of 1812. And it's like, well, the next two decades we spent raiding and pillaging and taking land from innocent people. And giving a bad name to immigrants. And then we fought each other. Oh, yeah. Then we were like, we don't have anyone else to fight here. Um, South? Yep. You want to do this? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. And not even did the Native Americans catch a lot of hate, but this war reinforced what is known as Anglophobia in the United States from the American people. And now this basically means that Europeans were never to be trusted, whether they were peaceful immigrants or members of, I mean, other governments or other nations' governments, there's a 
constant fear of what Europe was doing at this time. Pretty much European immigrants that were Catholic were just like the yes. enemy. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> the Irish. Yes. And this ideology was very much present during the mass Im- immigration of the early 1900s. Which we briefly spoke about in our Mafia series. So, If you'd like more information on that, go listen to our... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can hear our, the first ever appearance of the Italian music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one running like, gag of Gems of History. That and bringing up the Pites of the Caribbean movie. Yes. And now finally, do have one more note from... Andrew Lambert for the British the British side of things. And I quote, even when the British agreed to negotiate with the US, the discussions at Ghent remained entirely subordinate to the main diplomatic gathering at Vienna. So let me back up. Vienna is where they were negotiating or putting a final stamp on the Napoleonic Wars. Eventually the British offered a status quo antebellum peace, without concession by either side. The Treaty of Ghent ignored the orders in council, the belligerent rights and impressment. By accepting these terms, the Americans acknowledged the complete failure of the war to achieve any of their strategic or political aims. Once the treaty had been signed on Christmas Eve 1814, the British returned the focus to Europe. The wisdom of their decision soon became obvious. Napoleon returned to power in 1815 only to meet his Waterloo at the hands of the Duke of Wellington. Now, this is probably the most interesting part that I think of kind of the British side. Had the United States stayed in the war, the army that defeated Napoleon might have been sent to America. Anglo-American relations remained difficult for the next 50 years, but when crisis erupted over frontiers and maritime rights, British statesmen subtly reminded the Americans who had won the War of 1812 and how they had won it. In case any doubt remains, the results were written in stone all along the American coast. Between 1815 and 1890, American defense expenditure was dominated by the construction of coastal fortifications on the Atlantic seaboard. So basically what he's saying is that if we would have continued the war of 1812 into 1815, or excuse me, 1816, after Napoleon got beat at Waterloo, he's saying the full entire force of the British Army and Navy would have came for our ass. <laughs> yeah, so we probably would have been recolonized We at that would point. all be eating crumpets or whatever the boiled, heck. Boiled meats. Ugh. And, yeah. Fish and chips. Fish and chips sounds just horrendous. <laughs> if we have UK listeners, I guess, I don't know, just, send me a recipe and I'll just make it. fish and fries. I mean, it can't be that bad. That's literally what I had for dinner yeah. today. <laughs> we call it a fish fry and we say, oh. Yep. <laughs> but that's kind of the main thing. Like That also led to a lot of money being spent by the United States government, basically saying we need to shore up our seashores. Yep. To... uh Basically, make sure the British can never just kind of get us again. Yep. Like we mentioned, the War of 1812, even though it isn't really talked about in American history books, it doesn't have nearly as much coverage as the Civil War, Revolutionary War, World War One, World War Two, Nam. Damn, we've been in a lot of wars. <laughs> but it, More profitable. Yeah. But it definitely has a huge resounding impact 
not only on how we treated the Native American people going forward, it also has lasting impacts on kind of how we, shouldn't say we, how American public would handle immigration in the 1900s. And you can even still see themes and issues from this time, even today. So, I mean, back then, Americans were extremely divisive on every single major issue. Today, we're still divisive on every single American or extreme issue. Well, and there's still so many patriots out there, like self-named patriots out there. Right. So, I mean, the patriotism part of it, the nationalist aspect, definitely still survives to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got pretty much the setup for the two-party system, as we mentioned last episode, from this war, because the other opposing party, the major one in the Northeast, was right. the Federalist Party. Mm-hmm. And after this war, the Federalist Party got pretty much disbanded. And there was, like, a, a major reason for that was because they, like, suggested, I, it was called, like, the uh, the Hartford Convention. And it was honestly a really good, like, proposal but it was at the time when national fervor was at a fever pitch so their suggestions were they that we eliminate the law about slaves being three-fifths of a person which good and then basically making it a requirement that two-thirds vote needed to be approved for a war declaration yep which is also good yep but at the time we were just like we just won why are you guys trying to take away things that we just (laughs) used to win yeah like so if they would have proposed that at like any other time, it might have been fine, and we may have had more than just the two-party system. But because of the War of 1812, it pretty much set the stage that this was going to fail immediately. Right. They were branded as basically un-American. Yeah. They were branded as British supporters, which kind of goes back into that Anglophobia. They were basically seen as traitors yep. from then on. But. And then we got two presidents out of it. We got William Henry Harrison, who was the <laughs> shortest presidential term in the American history. Just couldn't wear a jacket. Yeah. The, so for those of you that don't know the story, William Henry Harrison was elected president. He was, I believe, the ninth president of the United States. And he was the first president to take the train to Washington, D.C. to give his speech. He gave the longest speech in American history for an inauguration, which was around two hours long. I can't imagine. And it was cold and drizzly that day because it was in the middle of March in Washington, D.C., and he refused to wear a jacket. So he was standing in the rain for two hours giving his speech, which he shortly caught a cold afterwards, and then contracted pneumonia and died Literally thirty days into his or thirty one days into his presidency, so he died. Uh, or he was inaugurated on March fourth, died on April fourth, and he <laughs> did not do much for the presidency. But I mean, he was he did like from by all accounts, he was a good president for that short period. He was the president. He was a supernova because he like, according to everyone, said like, "I'll only run for one term. I'll make sure that all the powers are like in check. Like I'm not gonna veto a ton of shit. I'm not gonna be like a power hungry maniac." I'm. He got like a ton of his own supplies and stuff whenever he needed things for the presidency in that short period of time, and <laughs> it was cool because like his presidency was the first speech that was readily available to read the day of because of the train system. So there's a lot of cool things that happened around his presidency for how minimal it was. But just like you could have just listened to your mom for once and just wore a jacket, <laughs> just even a scarf, like keep the neck, yeah, keep the neck warm. But and so like if he would have 
like survive, the political landscape could have been way different. But, oh, totally. Yeah, it. He just decided to give a very long speech and then died. <laughs> I can't imagine saying any anything. Well, I was just about to say I can't imagine saying anything for two hours, but we literally just did. Yeah, two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but total casualties or excuse me, total deaths for the two sides of the War of eighteen twelve. So, on the United States military side, we had 2,260 deaths. And now, on the British, we had 1,160 deaths. However, so the 1,160 was just, like, from actual battle. There were actually 3,321 deaths by disease by the British. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, especially when they're going from the UK to, like, Louisiana, where there's so many mosquitoes and swamp. <laughs> right. Like, it's all swamp. So, I mean, yep. there's so many different things you can contract from going into a landscape like that when you're not from there. So, hence the reason why we gave all of the Native Americans smallpox and killed off a bunch of them with it. So We beat them with the plague. Yeah. Man. America's greatest hits. Man. But, anyway, that's my good friends, and my fellow gemstones, is the story of the War of 1812. Yeah. I bet you didn't think that a war you've barely heard of could get two hour-long episodes out of it. Some of your favorite history podcasts. Wow, we can do it all. Look at us. Look at us go. Man. But yeah, I hope you all enjoyed it. I mean, I personally really liked researching it. Mostly just the causes of the war as well as just the kind of aftermath i found it very interesting very sad we'll fully admit that but I just found it very interesting that this war that we simply do not talk about had a incredible impact on what america would be for the next 200 years it's just so funny to me how it already in this early time period in u.s being a country shows how well we are or how well we do with like propagating hmm. our own story right and being like no we're the best because like we really didn't win the wars but i mean from all accounts that you hear about it, it's like yeah we did all right so sure i guess from all accounts like i was pretty even steven yeah it's like if britain would have tried <laughs> right exactly be. but you won't hear that because nationalism and america because how dare you teach our children the real life truth yeah so yeah we're just we're just here to have fun and talk to you guys about history and retell stories so we're great tellers of stories yes we are very we like good, to think we so. are very good at repeating what other people have said and making it sound like we're smart yes uh we are so smart i read a powerpoint <laughs> <laughs> but evan you want to tell them where they can find our smart asses you can find ooh. Depends on how the photo shoot goes. <laughs> but you can find us at gems underscore history on Twitter. You can find Jacob on Twitter at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at Wadevskis. You can then find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. And then last but not least, you can find us on TikTok at gems of history pod. Yeah, and if you guys have any topic suggestions, I mean, I know we've been doing this for over a year now, but we're still always looking for topics. I mean, we've covered quite a few, and there's still so much else that we can cover, but we're 
always wondering what you guys want to hear because you guys are the ones that are going to listen to it. So, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of important. So, I mean, if you guys want to reach out to us there or by email, gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com, feel free because we're always open to suggestions and we're always looking to learn about stuff that we've probably never heard of if it's coming from you guys. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let us know. We're always looking forward to it. And next week we'll be back with, I think we're going to do a, a little more of a relaxed episode. It's going to be maybe something you guys are familiar with. Ooh. So we'll, we'll see if we uh, go with a, a little bit of an addendum to a previous episode. Carry on an old story. That's a big word. <laughs> <laughs> so look for Meaning the word story. It'll be a lot of fun and a lot of ooh. So ooh. I'm looking forward to it. But Me too. I mean, we've covered some... Uh, Pretty serious stuff in the past few weeks. I mean, this was a lot more lighthearted than mm. Ruby Ridge, but I mean, right? We, yeah, we got pretty serious for a little bit there. So now we're going back to a little more lighthearted stuff. And I don't want to like destroy my brain by researching the same thing for three weeks in a row. So, right? Maybe we can go, you know, a week or two without being like, you know, you know what's wrong with America. <laughs> It's kind of just been the last five weeks. I mean, the next one's uh, it might have that in it still. But <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> you guys can find out about that next week. So everyone, that's how you tease an episode. <laughs> everyone have a great week this week. We love you, and we love that you listen to us, and we appreciate it. So keep listening. Tell your friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>